Welcome to Dream Radically Podcast, a series brought to you by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Dream Radically is the need for those passionate about justice and equity to imagine the world they want to see, to envision a place that provides the societal conditions necessary for true justice to be the norm for all people. Join us as we embark on the journey of dreaming radically with community leaders, artists, activists, educators, and more. My name is Miles Francisco, and I'll be your host on this path of imagining. Let's dream. So today I'm joined with Dr. Sabina Vat, who is a scholar of carceral studies and education. We talk about a number of topics related to abolition, related to the carceral state, and so much more. I really wanted to have this conversation because in the current state of uprisings all across the country, here in Oklahoma, in Texas, in Minneapolis, in Louisville, all over the place, there's hyper-vigilance around the various systems that harm us and that oppress us, and looking for a just response to these things in a way that centers communities. And I think this conversation around abolition often gets lost because for a lot of people, this is the first time ever hearing these things. I wanted to have this conversation with a scholar who studies these things literally for a living and to look at the ways that abolition shapes us and also how the carceral state and this idea of carcerality and surveillance harms communities. So let's get into this convo. Sabina Vat is inaugural co-chair and co-founder of the Carceral Studies Consortium at the University of Oklahoma, co-founder and co-director of the Women and Girls Across Gender Initiative spanning OU and local communities, and is professor and chair in the Department of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at OU. In the fall, she will be joining the faculty and leadership team at the University of Pittsburgh School of Education. She is author of two books, most recently, Compulsory, Education and the Dispossession of Youth in a Prison School with the University of Minnesota Press. She is currently in Seattle, where she is scholar-in-residence at the University of Washington Simpson Center for the Humanities. She is working on two book projects involving the carceral state and education. So welcome, Dr. Vat, to the podcast. So appreciate you coming on today. How are you? Good, and thank you for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So I really wanted to have this conversation. I had actually had you down as a potential guest for, for some time. I was at the University of Oklahoma familiar with the Carceral Studies Consortium and had gone to a couple of you all's events and was myself uh, someone who has been sort of engulfing myself in the, the research and scholarship around the carceral state and abolition of the prison industrial complex as a whole. So as someone who has at, at the very least read some things and engaged with some of the research in recent weeks after the public lynchings of, of George Floyd, um, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and Tony McDade, and so many others, there's been ever-present calls for the defunding of the police in various cities and calls for abolition now, coming from a whole lot of organizers who have been organizing around these things for years. But then you also have a whole lot of people who are just now being mobilized around these issues around police reform and wanting to ensure that the police are held accountable and then also coming into contact with these ideas of abolition for the first time. And there's a whole lot of, I think, misinformation and people who just haven't really engaged with it or really listened to organizers who have been doing work around abolition for some time. So they're a bit confused. So I think my first question for you would be to sort of map out what you see as the carceral state 
And if you could give us uh, maybe a working definition, I know it's obviously a, a huge concept in theory. Sure. You raised this question about abolition, and it certainly is a rallying cry right now. And I wonder if that's maybe a way into talking about the carceral state, if that makes sense. Because I think people think the state, and they think, okay, this rigid, fixed, kind of mappable entity or collection of entities. And this is a really fluid, really dynamic power structure, sort of a constellation of structures and ideologies with lots of internal contradiction. And some would argue, many scholars would argue, that's what gives it its power. So if you're thinking about a sort of supremacist state, that it's not well aligned, but there's this sort of constant flux or movement to reconsolidate power. And in fact, the state not knowing itself, not knowing its history, not understanding the misalignment of its power structures gives it a greater sense of being truth or fact or normal, just a given. So I think abolition helps us think about how to disrupt the normalization of this messy, fluid, sort of behemoth set of power structures. Abolition often gets understood, as to your point, by people who are excited and upset and enraged And so I think abolition feels like, right, just end this. But I think what those organizers and organizations you're pointing to have asked us to think about for a long time, and and I would direct people to critical resistance sort of first as a, a great place to go think, learn, reflect on, understand abolition organizing. Abolition isn't about tear it down. Abolition is about, and this is, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore or Angela Davis or a whole bunch of people who've been in this work for decades saying we have to be able to imagine what a society without incarceration or carcerality or police looks like and be able to describe and design that and then be able to dismantle and build. And so that if, if we're dismantling without the building, We know what hegemony does, right? It reformulates itself. And that's sort of one of the concerns I think people rightly have about this move to defund city or municipal uh, police departments. You can defund or dismantle what comes in its place. There are on the ground in Minneapolis, for instance, there's Reclaim the Block or the Black Visions Collective or people who've been doing the local work, understand the local history, understand the local power dynamics and are doing the abolitionist work of imagining, describing, building. And that would be sort of where resources and attention would go rather than resources and attention going to a city council studying how to take down a police department. And then we've seen in other cities, they just build a new police department, Mm -hmm. a nicer one with basketball courts on site or does block parties. This is not abolition. Yeah. Pass it back. Mm. Yeah. So this idea around policing and something that you often hear after instances of police brutality, and I think a lot of abolitionists have helped us to understand how just focusing on police brutality rather than policing as a whole um, Mm -hmm. is the wrong way to look at it, right? And to also think about when you have these instances of police violence or police killings, um, it's a few bad apples. And there's, there's something wrong with this cop and this cop over here. But the majority of cops are, are good people and really are here to, to protect and serve the community, like we're told that police are supposed to do so. 
Could you talk a bit about sort of like the institution of policing and sort of this idea mm -hmm. about policing communities and particularly the disparate policing that you have of marginalized communities? Right. So in some ways, this gets to the way in which any of these systems that need to be abolished are described. We hear people talk about mass incarceration. It's not mass incarceration. Dylan Rodriguez has written really beautifully about this. Right? It's very targeted incarceration. It's massive in numbers, but this is about targeting people by race, gender, geography, economics. And so that's a way of thinking about policing is that if we think about reform, which I think is what a lot of city and state governments are looking at, that reform, as we know, and we'll go back to Ruth Wilson Gilmore, reform is just sort of reinventing the same system. And, you know, she really talks about non-reformist reform. So what can you do right now while real people are being murdered or executed while real people are being incarcerated, sort of in tandem with, simultaneous to dismantling those systems. Because you can't say, well, in 24 hours, there will be no blank. You name it, horrible system in the blank. Mm -hmm. I think this sort of notion of a few bad apples or this notion that this is about building relationships or engaging communities or being on, on bikes instead of in patrol cars. You know, we know this is sort of pretty simple reifying of the institution itself as normal and true and a given and sort of that it's not, not the institution itself. And so I think this gets back to the local, sort of hyper-local work that abolitionists are doing. And so we can say, well, we know that there's a history of policing in what were called slave patrols. And that some people would say, well, that's the origin story for policing in the U.S. And we know there's also a modeling of police departments after the emerging police in the metropoles of Europe. So you know, European nations realized, well, their sort of average privileged citizen doesn't like military intrusion into their private sphere. So police are a great connector because they're, they're local and they're an access point into the surveillance and control and regulation of people. And that gets to your question about the carceral state. So the carceral state is highly invested in being able to monitor and manage and surveil everyone. And so in some ways in the U.S. we have these odd histories. There's on the one hand police as a violent, murderous, brutal group of vigilantes who are then deputized. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a you know, de deputized by really the, the local plantation block. And then you have a state that's interested in and it's a massive state, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of too many people. And so it's got to figure out how to link into the local context. And we, you know, we see this, that journalists, organizers, scholars, all sorts of people are constantly sort of spied on by the local police. So this is my long-winded way of saying there are these histories of the police in the U.S. that are about supporting the plantation block. So the police are a product of racialized class warfare, right? That very clearly, they're a product of a state wanting to intervene on and spy on all of its quote unquote citizens 
um, in local areas without being perceived as being a military state, without mobilizing, as we've seen recently, the sort of national level military. And while they are militarized, you know, they've received billions of dollars of surplus equipment since the late 90s. So from the the military to local police departments, they don't act as a military. They act really as local spy control link, labor control, executioner, the sort of various localized functions that link up and sort of do the work of the carceral state in both directions. So when you're asking the question, you know, when we sort of think about reform, we could look at other state institutions and say, well, when we say look at educational reform, you could take teachers and police officers as sort of counterparts. Well, let's just do anti-bias training with teachers, right? Or let's teach teachers that they need to learn more quote-unquote diverse histories or you know let's change discipline policy but it does nothing to question the actual existence of teachers in schools as we know them their purpose their function and so it just sort of reinforces the naturalness of those institutions and then they reformulate and they go on undertaking their repressive carceral function. So a couple places I want to take this, but I think with that last thing you were saying about the the role of the the teacher in the carceral state, you know, we often hear this school to prison pipeline, this term school to prison mm-hmm. pipeline and this idea of a continuum event that you actually that you all hosted earlier this semester to think about the ways that the school isn't always this angelic place for students or for communities in the prison, right, as sort of like this clear bad actor. So I wonder if you can talk more, because I think teaching or teachers is is a place where most people presume is well, is always a place of good. Um, and I think this is a, a really good place to understand how the carceral state is more than just the physical buildings of prisons and the, the literal cop cars or the police officers killing people or, um, you know, surveilling communities, but also the ways that these other institutions, like the school, educational departments, or what have you, also are there to enforce sort of these norms or fixed ideas that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this gets back again to this massive question of abolition. So Du Bois in Black Reconstruction is a huge book, but if folks only read one, I would say read that one, yeah. <laughs> um, all 900 pages. <laughs> but he really lays out the interconnectedness of racial repression, labor, and the tentacles of these institutions. And that abolition, so, you know, he's talking about abolition of the system of slavery can't be about just the system of slavery. So you can quite literally abolish something. But if you're not abolishing the network of systems and ideologies, then again, that just reformulates itself. And so schools are a great example of that, I think, um, in, in many, many ways. And again, this is a, it's national in scope, but it's also incredibly local in the ways it gets played out. And so I think if we look historically For instance, and I think this is becoming more and more well-known as an example, in the case of Brown v. Board of Education, 
the issue was not that the Brown family felt the education their daughter was receiving was in any way subpar. The argument was a matter of safety. It was crossing dangerous railroad tracks and streets and having to go a distance rather than going to a local school. I think the larger relevant feature of that story to this conversation is that post-Brown, a number of things happen. One is in the 10 years post-Brown, in the 16 primary states addressed, over 40,000 Black teachers were pushed out of their jobs. Mm. And so you have this unbelievably, well, it's believable, but this this massive um, firing of Black teachers as schools reformulate their racial power. So you have a problem of segregation. And if you just address that problem in schools, you're just going to have the reformulation of segregation, of resources, of professional access, of pedagogy, and, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, we see the increase of the movement of Black students into special education, the creation of deepened relationships between schools and prisons and related institutions, all all sorts of legal or law-based institutions. And so the abolition question is, um, what is it that you're trying to abolish? And not what institution, but what system of repression and violence And then where do you identify that system of repression and violence across multiple institutions and ideologies? And how is it a a simultaneous approach so that if we're talking about, so the, you know, Minneapolis public schools is cutting their relationship with the Minneapolis police department. And that makes it appear as if the issue is that particular department being so terrible is the narrative. That the issue is them being in schools rather than schools being sites of policing and control and punishment and harm. And so I I think there's a need, and this is a challenging problem and means constellating lots of different organizations and efforts, but there's a need then to look across all the institutions in Minneapolis and ask, where is anti-Black violence in all its forms occurring and then how do you address those from community knowledge that I don't I don't have? And I would say anyone sort of outside that community who pretends to know where they should go is misguided. So how do you work with those people within the communities who can work across complex institutional and local terrain to actually undertake an abolition that won't just be a reformulation, that won't be, as in Brown v. Board, the loss of thousands of jobs. And I, and I think that gets to police are a major labor force. They have a powerful union. And this is where I think the work of Cedric Robinson and people like Robin Kelly is so important in thinking through, okay, yes, this is a militarized group. Yes, this is a supremacist group. And this is a labor group, just like teachers are a labor group. And how do you sort of understand that labor is in the U.S. always raced and always about racial power? And how do you ask questions that are supportive of 
labor justice and abolish this sort of labor as a site for racial class warfare. Yeah. So that's a lot, right? You know, so as we're talking about these various systems and we're talking about these various institutions that are all interconnected to work to harm, oppress, inflict violence upon certain people, certain communities, what have you. I think often when people hear abolition, when people are hearing right now defund the police, when people are hearing abolition now, they often think that it's just a snap of a finger, quite literally. And tomorrow, the police is gone, the prisons will be gone. And I think you brought this up earlier with what Wilson Gilmore talks quite a bit about is this idea of non-reformist reforms. And when we're thinking about reform or reformist reforms, as she sort of lays out this dichotomy, as a reformation of the same system that we're trying to dismantle or disrupt or for, you know, a lot of people, I think, trying to, to, to put curtains over um, and trying to continue the cycle of this, of this repression. And I wonder if we could talk a bit more about this, this idea of non-reformist reforms and what that would be to get us to a place that sets us to a place of abolition that isn't, and, and, and maybe this might be useful to just talk about some, some common reformist reforms, whether it's community policing or more trainings for you know police officers or what have you. But then what might be some, some non-reformist reforms that people could really focus on and hone on and push for in whatever locality they're in? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, you know, my good colleague, who's a brilliant scholar, Damien Sojoyner, really talks very thoughtfully about the ways in which you can look at state-initiated or responsive reform as a always counterinsurgent. Mm. So even when you see you see the Minneapolis City Council voting, they have nine votes. It's you know protected from veto. You see them voting to study how to, I think is how I understand it. They will dismantle, but how and what that actually means is will be under study. I think you can look at the state, whether you're looking at a city council or you're looking at the federal level, and you can say, what does that co-optation tell us about where the threat is? And the threat is the insurgency, and that tells us where freedom is. Hmm. So, for instance, I think, you know, Massachusetts, I lived in Massachusetts for 12 years, and while I was there, the state legislature passed Chapter 222. I think I'm saying that right. Effectively, this was the state receiving pressure, and this is a not Oklahoma, right? This is a state that wants to be mm-hmm. imagined a sort of good, white, liberal democracy, in fact, the birthplace of it and the home of the Kennedys and and this very convoluted narrative that it's constantly trying to uphold. So the state is receiving pressure because there's this obvious relationship between out-of-school suspension and expulsion and the movement of young people or school-aged people into the legal system. The ACLU has been active and so on and so forth. So you have a self-imagined and a self-narrated liberal white state that says, well, we need to address this. So we're going to create a legislative act that requires all principals over the next year, this was 2014, 15, something like this, 
to develop a discipline plan that effectively removes out-of-school suspension accepting cases that might rise to the level of crime, which is also a construct and a fiction. Hmm. But effectively what they're saying is, if the kid wouldn't be removed legally from school anyway, don't kick the kid out for any period of time. So what do you imagine happened? Put him in ISS or some other form of punishment. Right. <laughs> right. And I think this is the thing. Anytime the liberal state says, yes, we're going to reform, like we don't like this thing that people call the school to prison pipeline and our schools need to be better and we don't want to be anti-Black. So we're going to tell principals, get it together and don't suspend kids because we know that that increases their likelihood of entering into the legal system by whatever. Well, it's just a reformulation of power according to that state expression of carcerality. Hmm. All the underlying features stay the same. And so I think that's reform. Reform is where there is a change that's in response to some kind of pressure, threat, push, problem, crisis, whatever the thing might be. And the state says, yeah, let's respond to that. But that response is really about co-opting. So the movement of restorative justice into schools, for instance, reproduces the notion largely, I shouldn't make a blanket claim here, but largely reproduces the notion and the dynamic that individual young people need to take responsibility for their quote-unquote behavior, and it eclipses the role of structural repression, racism, supremacy. It eclipses the role of that in schools in producing stress, tension, resistance, rebellion, you name it, and re recodes those for the state, reformulates the coding of those as individual behaviors that the student can address, can engage in a healing process. And so in that case, for instance, restorative justice, restoring to what I'm not sure, it's not just, and it's really about locating blame and within young people and then eclipsing these extraordinary stressful and controlling structures and systems of power. So I think that's another example of reform. Well, restorative justice might have seemed threatening and scary. So what better thing to do if you're the state than to take it over and make it yours? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's reform. And again, I'm not suggesting a blanket analysis. There's certainly variability across contexts. And there are certainly places where healing or restorative processes are communally driven and shaped and so on. But in general, I think this is an example of reform. Those are, you know, obviously those reforms. So what might be some non-reformist reforms, right, in response to the current moment or even when looking at the ways that schools continue to reinforce punishment um, and carcerality? But also if you want some non-reformist reforms that might look at the current police state when looking at policing, wherever you want to go? I think two things are really essential here. One is the answer to that question should always be collective. Mm. 
And I would be remiss in Mm -hmm. as an individual answering that. I think that should be produced out of deep local collective contestation, deliberation Mm -hmm. involving people coming together from different contexts. Mm -hmm. So for example, in my field in education, there is sometimes this taking up of these frameworks and then saying, here's how you do it in a classroom. Mm. Instead of saying, here's how you engage community mm-hmm. to learn what that means and what that looks like in local community. I think it should never be an individual answer and should always be local, should always be collective, should always be dynamic. I think the role of scholars is to say, can we be a resource? Can we share some of what we know for your use we may or may not have something useful who knows i i I think that should be the role of scholars in this kind of transformation to also answer that question in a way that and i think what often happens in the u.s and we're looking at reform right now you just have i think it's called like justice in action you have the dems in washington you know a blanket police reform and it is that reform that we should be weary of but this sort of thinking, replacing the energy and the power and the resources of the state, however you want to define it, back into communities and back into to the hands of organizers and people who are closest to the harm and the systems that are that continue to to keep them subjugated, I think is the best way to look at it and that it shouldn't be a this works here, so this is going to work here and this is going to work everywhere, but then also to be wary of the ways that the state often co-ops these things. So restorative justice is really big. Uh, You know, we have a problem with punishment, so we need to respond in a way that's restorative. This is often coming from organizers on the ground, but then it's taken up by departments or by entire schooling systems to say, okay, now we're going to take this here and and put it in these very same systems that are reinforcing these these ways of, of punishing and of surveilling marginalized people. So I think that's great. I think we, and I, and I, sort of fall into this too. The police or schools, these hot spots become magnets. They command a sort of gravitational pull so that while you have police executing people, harassing and repressing and controlling and surveilling people, there's a natural inclination. There's a gravitational pull toward that. I think one of the things we have to think about is what interests are they serving? You know, we're living in a context that was designed and built for mass accumulation through exploitation and repression and and a sort of constant conquest over people and land, subjugation. It takes on different forms, but it's no different in, in substance than it's ever been. So we think, oh, they serve the state, they're militarized, look at these tanks. But whose interests do they really serve in in whatever context you're looking at? So how do you challenge the power of that block or those blocks mm-hmm. in thinking about abolition? And if in Oklahoma, the, the police serve the sort of oil block in part, I'm not saying uniformly, absolutely not, but that's one block. How do you think about abolition? And again, this is Du Bois is talking about you got to think across the, these systems. And he was really making a, a very what Cedric Robinson calls a black Marxist analysis. Does one think about 
the function the police serve, their expression is anti-Black violence and execution and anti-Indigenous and, and so on. But how do you fight police anti-Blackness without fighting who they're doing it on behalf of? And they don't even, I'm not suggesting they know. They're not like, okay, yeah. well, you know, we got to protect the the oil burns or whatever. It's not this is what I'm saying about the carceral state being messy, being amnesic, being disconnected. Its parts are disconnected, but they deeply reinforce one another's power mm-hmm. so that if not only municipalities, but if your plantation block is comfortable with the defunding or dissolving and recreation of a police department, there's a worry because that means they feel like their ability to surveil, control, dominate, execute can be and is being undertaken in other ways. And so I think one of the abolition questions has to be, well, locally and nationally, who are police serving? Some answers will be obvious. Some won't be so obvious. And then what is it that they're already doing to shore up their power, which is always racially violently shored up? Mm. Yeah. One thing you mentioned earlier, sort of in passing, but was this idea of crime, crime, Mm -hmm. this this made up fiction, social construct, what have you. And I think one of the major ways that policing as a whole gets reinforced or gets legitimized is this idea of crime and that crime is real and we need to respond to this, uh, to this really bad thing of these really bad people. So the criminalization of both actors or or communities or, you know, in many ways, identities the criminalization of survivors or the criminalization of Black people or the criminalization of, of queer and trans bodies or what have you. So I wonder if you could just like sort of unpack this idea of crime as a fiction um, and sort of made up to, to reinforce possibly, you know, these systems. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, again, to, to Damien Sojourner's point, where we see state action, we can, we can regularly trace the counterinsurgent intention. So We see in large cities across the U.S. that police department funding was increased after crime. And I'm going to use it here in terms of the way it's codified in those contexts. After crime dropped precipitously. So you see a drop in crime. And then you see an increase in city funding of police. What does that tell you? Mm. That's a real question, and and I'm not sure I have the the total comprehensive answer, but I think one thing it tells us is that the state and powerful capitalist blocks, plantation block, for instance, need the production of crime. Mm. And so if what has been this fiction of crime is by data observed to decrease, that's a threat. That's an insurgent threat. And what has to happen then is this labor force that serves these other larger, more powerful entities, states and private, has to go in and produce crime. And so I think we have to ask on our local levels, why do they need that? What is it they need? And that need has to be understood, I think, in terms of accumulation of resources, power, land, ideology, culture. So what is it that they're accumulating and protecting? 
and how, and why is that the case? So there's one way we know crime is a fiction is because the state and its partnered privates, those blocks will invest in its production, invest in increasing police department budgets by millions and millions of dollars in order to get those crime statistics back up. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an observation of a dynamic and, and I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe this is a false set aside, but for a second set aside crimes of gender violence, mm-hmm. those are always overlapping with, with race, with region, et cetera. So I don't want to make a false distinction, but I think that adds a complication into what I'm saying. But I think the the idea of property itself is a fiction that emerged out of Europe that is part of the conquest of the Americas. And so then the privatization and the control and the defense and the security of property and the need to always have that be threatened and then always have those who are threatening in order to maintain a social order that is fundamentally deeply anti-democratic. So conquest has been pretty stupid, honestly. If you if you kind of look back at the 15th century conquest, there were brutal and, and vicious relationships to people that were all about accumulation. So you have an initial set of relationships to indigenous people from those European conquerors that was one of genocide, one of decimation. And then you see those conquerors discover that they can accumulate wealth in new and different ways and then are frustrated at the small numbers of indigenous people to supply a forced labor pool. And then you have the plunder of Africa. So you have this sort of accumulation and greed that is not smart. It is brutal and it's overwhelming, but it doesn't have a plan (laughs) except to accumulate and dominate. And so in some ways, and, and Cedric Robinson writes about this, you know, racial regimes are fragile. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're not devastating. That's an important distinction. I think part of what we have to understand in this moment is what's the fragility, and I don't mean white fragility and that whole book and all that nonsense. Um, <laughs> I, I really mean structural, material, ideological fragility of this regime what's the crisis it's in? It's not smart. It's brutal and it's brutish, but it's not smart. And so how is it currently reconstructing what for many decades we've seen has been its imagination and production of a surplus Black labor force? So you have shifting relationships of supremacy through labor and through accumulation And how then are police and schools reformulating to make real a surplus of human beings Mm -hmm. and also to control and brutalize a surplus of human beings? Anytime we're talking about the state and we're looking at that counterinsurgent move, we do need to look at insurgency and we do need to think about the viability and power and 
sort of extraordinary history of Black people in across the Americas. And I think, you know, James Baldwin says this in The Fire Next Time. He said, and he's writing a letter, he says, I know it seems like I'm asking the impossible. I'm really not doing this verbatim right here very well. But the general idea is one is emboldened by looking at the history of Black people in the United States because it is about constantly achieving the impossible. So I think part of abolition too, and part of all these complex dynamics and power structures we're talking about, there has to be a constant return to the knowledge, the traditions, the power, the insurgency of Black communities and Black people locally Mm -hmm. and across continents. Mm -hmm. So I have one more question for you. So the name of this podcast is Dramatically Podcast. And, you know, the last question that I like to ask all of my guests in tune with the the name of the podcast is sort of what is your radical dream? And it can be in relation to the carceral state, to education, to prisons and policing. If your radical dream was to come to fruition, what would that society look like? And you can go really as big or as small as you'd like. Well, I think I'm going to do the hesitant thing I, thing I did before. <laughs> uh-huh. And that is to say, I think that's a collective answer. I can say things like I hope for liberation. I can say I think nation states, their time needs to end. Mm -hmm. Um, Mass society is inherently destructive and repressive. You know, what I wish for is I love, as do many, many people, the Combahee River Collective work. And one of the things I love about that work, and there are related sort of movements across time, there's a a book called Lessons from the Damned, and it was authored by a collective called The Damned. And I think that these authorings of radical reimagining should always be collective, should never be attached to a name. So I guess that's my hope, is that there are collective imaginings and buildings that are local people's hope for liberation coming true. Mm, That's beautiful. Um, Well, thank you so much, Dr. Vat. There's obviously a lot more that we could get into in this realm and, uh, you know, we might, might have you back on, but I really appreciate you and your, you know, your work and your scholarship and your, your grounding and, Um, these really big and complex topics and breaking them down for for us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dream Radically podcast presented by Foundation for Liberating Minds. Like and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the work of FLM at Foundation for Liberating Minds on all social media platforms or on our website at foundationforliberatingminds.org. Special thanks to The Third Space in Norman, Oklahoma for providing the beautiful space to record this podcast. Be well and may tomorrow bring us closer to our radical dreams.